For today's Bible reading, um, we're going to read from John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17, and that can be found on page 1,534 of the Pew Bibles. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thanks, Elaine. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's been written for us. So we pray today, as we turn to it, that you might show us uh, more of what your son is like and why he is worthy of our lives. Amen. Alrighty, well, can I ask you please to make sure you have a Bible open in front of you at John chapter 13 on page 1534. Uh, and also to take out the leaflet that you were given as you came in. On the inside, as usual, there's a reasonably detailed outline, including, you'll see on the right-hand side, um, a couple of blanks for you to fill in with the pen in front of you when we get there later in the talk. Uh, well, symbols can be so very powerful. Symbols can be so very powerful. Think of a presentation at an awards ceremony, a birthday present, or a farewell gift, maybe a keepsake, like a special piece of jewelry. Symbols can be very powerful, and symbolic actions can profoundly affect us. Think of the solemn giving of a national flag being presented to the family of a loved one who has died in military service. 
Symbols can be powerful, symbolic actions can change us. Today, we're going to see Jesus do something for his disciple, his disciples that's so significant and moving, it's meant to change them and shape them forever. As we do, it's worth us remembering why John has written this whole biography of Jesus' life. You'll see I printed there for you on your handout from John 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I hope that today you will see that Jesus is worthy of your investigation and ultimately that he is worthy of your life. Well, point one on your handout there, the hour has come. The hour has come. Pick it up with me in verse 1 of chapter 13. So look in your Bibles there. Chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, three things by way of setting the scene. Uh, firstly, verse 1, it was just before the Passover festival. It was just before the Passover festival. Now, John is telling us more than just the date and the time. He's saying this is one of the most significant moments in the Jewish calendar. It's the time when they recall the Exodus and how Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt. What makes it particularly important is that we readers have known ever since chapter 1, it's printed there on your handout, chapter 1, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Which is why I think back in chapter 13, look at it with me again, chapter 13, verse 1, the next sentence, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. The hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Actually, you'll see on your handout there that John's gospel is divided into two parts. The first part is called the Book of Signs. That's chapters 1 through 12. That's what we looked at last year. The second part is called the Book of Glory, John 13 through 21. And we'll be making our way through John on the lead into Easter. What it tells us is that John's entire biography of Jesus has been building to this moment. This moment when Jesus knows that his mission is almost over. So it's time for him to return home to the Father. That doesn't mean that Jesus has checked out or that he's lost interest. Rather, it's a signal for us. Pay attention. And in particular, what we get here is a first glimpse of a recurring theme in this passage. You see, I printed it there on your handout. Here's the theme. What Jesus knows shapes how Jesus acts. What Jesus knows shapes how Jesus acts. And so the third thing that happens in verse 1, pick it up there again, verse 1, the last sentence, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. In these last moments before Jesus leaves, before Jesus dies, amidst all the grief and the stress of his departure, what Jesus chooses to do is remind his disciples how much he loves them. How reassuring for them. And what's particularly helpful about what comes next is that in verses 2 through 11, we're going to see Jesus do something, his action, and then in verses 12 through 17, Jesus himself is going to explain what it means. So come with you then, point two on your handout, what Jesus does, verses 2 through 11, what Jesus does. Let me read verses 2 and 3. 
Uh, and we'll see what happens. Verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Well, you remember what Jesus said back, uh, John said back in verse 1? Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Now we're being told that the way Jesus is going to leave is by being betrayed. Betrayed by Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. Now, at one level, it's no surprise to us that Jesus is going to die. Uh, we know that because the Lamb of God will take away the sin of the world. It's an image that implies a sacrifice, a sacrificial death. But now we're being told that Jesus' death will also be at the hands of a friend's betrayal. And John even exposes the dark conspiracy that's against Jesus. You'll notice there in verse 3, Judas had already been prompted by the devil. For there are powerful forces at work on this night. It's again this very, against this very grim and sobering backdrop that Jesus shows how he loves his own to the very end. Pick it up with me in verse 4. Verse 4. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, we're going to explore the meaning of this highly symbolic action in just a moment. But before we do, remember that principle I talked about back at the start? What Jesus knows shapes how Jesus acts. Verse 3 tells us, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Jesus knew that he had come from God and was returning to God. And that means that despite the imminent betrayal from one of his 12 closest friends, knowing God's sovereignty and knowing his place in God's plans enables Jesus to press on and to stay the course. It's quite remarkable, actually, when you stop and think about it. His entire mission hangs in the balance. And yet, Jesus doesn't respond to the Judas and the devil conspiracy by launching a preemptive strike. And Jesus doesn't start second-guessing his Father's will. He doesn't suggest a different course of action. Instead, he washes his disciples' feet. And in so doing... He's actually communicating something to his disciples that's infinitely more helpful to them in this situation. He's saying to them, he loves them. He loves them to the end. And no matter what comes next, they will be safe in his love. Well, as for the action itself, I suppose I should point out just how unpleasant it would have been. I remember, of course, back then, this is a time where there were dirt roads, not paved roads. People had open-toe sandals. So everyone's feet were always filthy, all the time. Uh, foot washing, in fact, was considered such a menial task that a Jewish slave could not be required to do it. Only foreign slaves. And my guess is you heard me read verses 4 and 5 that any of us here who work in health or hospitality, you're particularly intrigued by the hygiene protocols that Jesus uses. 
Uh, verse 4, he takes off his outer clothing, he wraps a towel around his waist. Uh, I presume the splash and the mess went everywhere. Which is why I imagine that as Jesus started, his disciples were so shocked, they were frozen into inaction. That quite frankly, they were lost for words. Here's Jesus washing their feet. That is, until Jesus gets to Peter. Peter, who at least speaks up. Uh, Peter knows that Jesus ought not be humiliated in this way, so Peter refuses the service. Although, did you notice? Peter doesn't offer to take over from Jesus. And yet when Jesus replies, verse 8, verse 8, unless I wash you, you have no part of me, then as usual, Peter reacts in a way that, quite frankly, we all smile at. Verse 9, then Jesus, not just my feet, wash my hands and my head as well. To which Jesus responds, verse 10, those who have had a bath need only wash their feet, so their whole body is clean. Their whole body is clean. Well, let me pause for a moment and try and unpack what it is that Jesus means when he says to his disciples, your whole body is clean. A couple of comments. Firstly, remember that foot washing, it's clearly a symbol of something more significant. It's a symbol of something more significant. That is, you don't need a head-to-toe immersion to, for Jesus' actions to be effective in your life. The washing of the feet is symbolic of something greater. And so the second thing to notice is that the type of cleaning that Jesus provides, the type of service that he's offering, it must be more than just physical and external. What Jesus offers is cleansing that's inward and spiritual. Because he is the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. What's particularly intriguing about what Jesus says is how verse 10 continues, though. Pick it up with me again, verse 10. Those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. A few comments about this. Firstly, when Jesus says to his disciples, you are clean... He can't mean your sins have all been taken away. I say that because, chronologically, Jesus has not yet laid down his life for them. The Lamb of God has not yet been sacrificed. At the same time, when Jesus says, you are clean, he cannot mean, and so therefore do whatever you want, live however you like. The reason I say that is because Jesus washes Judas's feet. Jesus washes Judas's feet. Even though he knows that Judas is about to betray him, still, Jesus offers Judas one last chance to back down. Because Jesus will show his love to the very end. I want to pause again just to say that in many ways I find what Jesus does for Judas to be almost overwhelming. Jesus washes Judas's feet 
even though Judas is about to betray him. I find it almost overwhelming, especially when I consider, or when I compare it with what I'm prepared to do for those I love. As you know, I don't very often tell dad stories, but I'm going to now. Uh, As babies, every one of my three children, at some stage, when they were babies, whilst I was holding them, they vomited on me. Uh, Unlike for Wendy, it never happened to her. Uh, Wendy's actually a sympathetic gagger. So if a child looked like it was about to throw up, what she would do is turn it around or else hand it to me. Um, Not me. I just stood there and I took it. All three of them. We will do anything for those we love, not for those we don't. And we'd never dream of helping someone who we knew was about to betray us. But I guess that's the point here in John 13. By even washing Judas's feet, Jesus demonstrates his love for everyone. Why would you ever refuse him? Can I say, if you're here today, someone who's not a believer, then, as Bernie welcomed you at the start, uh, we're delighted to have you join us at this church. Can I invite you? Come and meet Jesus. This Jesus, he shows extraordinary love in the most incredible of circumstances, despite what we are like. You know, one of the best ways in which you can do that, actually, is just to read an account of his life. Uh, We're in John 13. It's halfway through a book that's got 21 chapters. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to give you a copy of John's account and to read it with you, if that would be helpful. Please, come and see me or one of the staff or fill in that communication slip and we'll let you know afterwards. As an aside, uh, I just want to say... John 13 is one reason, I think, why nominal Christianity is so dangerous. Nominal Christianity? You know, the sense of pretending or play-acting with Jesus. This Jesus who shows us such incredible love. Last Christmas, uh, at one of our services, I talked with a visitor who said to me afterwards, Oh no, I never go to church. Uh, But I do make a point of coming to this service each year. As I walked away, I must say I found myself fearing for that person. For when they appear before Jesus and say to his face what they really thought of him and of what he did for us. Here's the final thing to say on this section. When Jesus says to his disciples, you are clean, he can't be suggesting that his disciples are perfect or sinless. Take Judas, if no one else. Rather, he is reassuring them that even though he's about to leave this world, he loves them and they belong to him and they will always be safe with him. You know, that's the reason why as Christians we continue to confess our sins, especially when we gather together, even though the Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world. It's the reason why we share in communion once a month to remind us 
both of our ongoing failings and of Christ's assurance that he freely forgives and that he has done so once for all time at the cross must never make us less contrite or less thankful. Well, there's what Jesus does. What does it all mean? Right-hand side of your handout, point three, Jesus explains what his actions mean. Uh, earlier I said it's really helpful when Jesus gives the explanations. He even tells us how we ought to respond. So come with me to verses 12 through 17 and let's see what Jesus says the point is. Verse 12. When he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. What's the meaning of the symbolic act of foot washing? Well, because Jesus served them, they are to serve each other. Because Jesus served them, they are to serve each other. And his logic is that, well, Jesus is greater than them and he was willing to wash their feet so they have no basis for withholding such service from anyone else. You might say, uh, as I often do, and it's pretty there on your handout, according to Jesus, the vertical shapes the horizontal. Actually, this is where I got it from. The way Jesus treats us is the way in which we treat others. And, uh, well, for a bit of fun, to make the point, there should be a picture on the screen behind me. Um, as you know, I turned 50 last year, and uh, Shay, who's a member of our 10.30 gathering, actually off in the kids' ministry at the moment, serving there, is a wonderful illustrator. Shay designed these stickers to remind you that the vertical shapes the horizontal. Um, and what I've done is I have one for every person in the church afterwards for you to take away afterwards. So come and see me, or you can get them from the welcome table. There's a little picture of me. It's not Jesus, okay? I, guess, I'm not, I understand that. Um, but... Uh, the vertical shapes the horizontal. Now, to be clear, their act of foot washing, it's not cleansing in the same ways that Jesus was. Rather, Jesus' example is meant to mould their attitudes and desires into that of willing service, even for the most menial of tasks. Because... The way the leader acts models how the followers should live. The way the leader acts models how the followers should live. The way the king conducts himself sets the tone and the pattern and the expectation and the aspiration of every citizen in his kingdom. Now, I don't want to get stuck in a debate about US politics but it seems to me that isn't that the reason why so many people are afraid in the run-up to the next presidential election? Because the character of the candidate affects how the whole country will behave. So here's today's big idea. 
and I've printed there on your handout so you can't forget the big idea following Jesus means self-sacrificial service of his people following Jesus means self-sacrificial service of his people and what I think Jesus is saying in John 13 is that if you're not willing to commit to this then you are no follower of his and notice I said there if you're not willing to commit to this because there are times at which some of us are not able because of incapacity or infirmity sometimes it's just impossible but what John 13 is I think is a warning against indifference or in or against indignation that you might be asked to do that or idleness in fact John 13 is saying that the test of whether you've grasped how much Jesus loves you and in fact the measure of your love for Jesus is not what you say it's what you will do will you wash the feet of other servants who are still here as opposed to the feet of the master who's left this world and gone to the father anyway i mean the great irony i think in john 13 is that if jesus had asked them to wash his feet i suspect they would have jumped at the honor i think that the only effective motivation for persistent lifelong service when it's hard or not enjoyable or we just don't feel like it the only effective motivation or it's not because the person deserves it or because they'll reciprocate or because we might gain recognition the only effective motivation is because Christ served us first finally remember how we saw at the very beginning that what Jesus knows shapes how Jesus acts well the same principle actually applies to the disciples look at me at verse 17 the last verse in the passage verse 17 now that you know these things you'll be blessed if you do them now that you know these things you'll be blessed if you do them and actually in verse 17 i think jesus answers one of the big questions that christians often have about church and service is there any joy in service is there any joy in service or or is service just all hard work done stoically through gritted teeth you know yes i am serving should you even expect to feel joy before you start well we all know how big a challenge this is in my experience i think we are more likely to rejoice when we're spared hard service i think of the very many university christian camps and conferences i went on where at the end there was always clean up and pack up and the rejoicing from those who didn't have to clean the toilets so here's my reflection and it's the blank for you to fill in on your handout joy is the product of service not its prerequisite i'll say it again joy is the product of service not its prerequisite 
Joy is the product of service, not its prerequisite. Now, how can I say that? Well, because of verse 17. In verse 17, Jesus says, when we do these things, when we serve others, we're doing what he wants us to do. And it seems to me, that's the most wonderfully rewarding and satisfying, dare I say, that's the most joyful way to live. It's a blessing to live your life doing exactly what Jesus wants you to do. I mean, isn't that what most Christians long for? Isn't that why we're so interested in finding out about God's guidance and discerning His will? Well, here's the wonderfully liberating way that Jesus sums up the entire Christian life into just one ethical principle. self sacrificial service because that's how he lived now i know of course that um, many of us want the details before you sign up some of us are perhaps thinking well how could jesus ever use someone like me can i urge you please don't let that hold you back in John 13, there's no mention of credentials or qualifications. There's no mention of skill. Just a willingness to put up your hand and to pre-commit to serving his people, to saying, yes, Jesus, I'm in, whatever you ask of me. And so you can see on the bottom right then, as we kick off 2024... As this year gets started, let me finish with uh, two observations, two questions, in fact. Firstly, from John 13, should we wash each other's feet when we come to church on Sundays? I thought I'd better say something about this in case you've misheard me. I don't think it's necessary. Um, we actually have pretty good foot hygiene, especially the Asians who always leave their food, shoes at the door. Uh, actually, it'd be pretty weird and uncomfortable and probably not understood very well by newcomers you know who are these people why do they just shake my hand why are they trying to take my, my shoes off so i don't think you need to wash feet when we arrive but the better question there on your handout how do we uphold the principle of self-sacrificial service at trinity city how do we serve self-sacrificially in a way that makes sense in our context that i think is the right question to ask at the start of this year. Well, there's all sorts of ways, some big, some small, some formal, some informal. Here's a few things that perhaps might spring to mind. Self-sacrificial service might mean you're willing to get here early, uh, to help out, to set up, to clean up the site on a Sunday morning after, quite frankly, the mess that's left here every Saturday night from Hindley Street. It might be willing to stick around afterwards to help pack up. Or maybe it means helping out on one of our tech teams that actually no one notices except when things go wrong. Self-sacrificial service in our church this year, maybe it means welcoming the stranger into your growth group or into your friendship group 
even though you know it might disrupt the great dynamic that you already have because everyone knows each other so well. Why is that particularly important? Well, it's because here at Trinity City, we are always welcoming newcomers who are looking for a family or for a home. In fact, if you have a look on screen behind me, last Sunday here, we had 31 people who came here, newcomers, looking for a new church family. That's not including visitors or people passing through on holidays. 31 people last Sunday. What might we do to welcome them into our family? Of course, the other area, uh, as we've just prayed about, and as we're going to hear a little bit about more from Bernie in just a moment, uh, you're aware that we are moving to two all-age gatherings in two weeks' time on February the 18th, one at 9, one at 10.45, kids' ministry programs at both. With that in mind, I want to ask, what will you give up for the sake of others to serve them? It might be your personal preference about a style of worship. Or it might be giving up the seat that you sat in for decades so that when new people join the gathering, they don't think, oh, no one told me that there's secretly reserved pews that I'm not allowed to sit in. As I said, we're going to hear a bit more from Bernie in just a moment about how, as morning gatherings, uh, we might use this as an opportunity for service. Self-sacrificial service requires both a willingness to serve and a willingness to be served by others, which, to be honest, can make us a bit uncomfortable at times. But it's how we become a community that's different and better. And so you'll see that at the bottom right of your handout, I've just finished with the words, imagine if. Imagine if this is what Trinity was known for. Not just for good Bible teaching or for a relentless pursuit of church planting. Imagine if Trinity was known for self-sacrificial service because our teacher and Lord loved us and set an example for us and says we'll be blessed if we do likewise. What a message I think that will communicate that this is a place worth belonging to and that it's different. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his act of service as a sign of his love for us. Please, we pray, strengthen us and enable us in this year ahead to be a people uh, who serve each other as a way of glorifying your Son. Amen.